Well, tonight we turn once again to the book of 1 Corinthians. So we'll be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the first 22 verses. 1 Corinthians 10, 20, or 1 through 22. I have to say, when I look at this chapter, I think this chapter is particularly for those who have been alerted by their conscience that a particular thing is sinful, but want to find a way to justify doing it anyway. You see, that's the situation here in Corinth. There are those who have understood that participation in idolatry is wrong, but because they know the teaching that idols really don't exist, they're really nothing, as Scripture teaches, they thought it would be okay to participate in idolatrous feasts in pagan temples. For the Corinthians, it was this participation that they were asking questions about. But for us, what kind of things do you know may be wrong, but you want to do them anyway? Here is a good chapter for this particular problem. Paul says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example. But they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? We're going to pause there and ask the Lord to bless our time together and to apply it to our lives. Let's bow in prayer. Father, indeed, let us 
apply these words to our lives by faith, by the power of your spirit. We cannot understand them or do them on our own. Father, give us ears ears to hear and hearts to understand them. And Lord, I pray that the words that are spoken this evening, as they were this morning, might be consistent with your words or else not be heard from again. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. My friend Fred had all the accoutrements of a particular order. He had the ring. He had the symbol on his license plate. He had the other marks and secret symbols or gestures that marked his involvement in masonry. Recently, many years ago, I'm talking about, recently he had become a Christian. Surely the lodge in his mind was just another social club that provided connections and did a lot of good in the community, right? Did he have to break his vows or give up his membership or stop attending the meetings of the Masonic Lodge because he had become a Christian? Well, even to ask these questions showed that the Holy Spirit was putting his conscience on alert that there was something in connection with the Masonic Lodge that was inconsistent with his Christian walk. And just by the fact that he began to ask those questions showed that there might be something in participating with these things and participating in the body of Christ. What about participating in questionable ceremonies, questionable events, questionable practices, or questionable groups like the Masonic Lodge or other religions or other groups that the Spirit places upon your heart and asks these types of questions? Well, this is the kind of thing that happened in Corinth. The Corinthians had grown up among pagans and had had come from a pagan background where they worshipped false gods. And in their community, all of the socialization was centered around these pagan temples. Their workplaces were centered around these temples. Their social skills, their their ability to eat rich foods and meats were often associated with idolatry. Their friendships, their families were intricately involved in all of these things in the pagan temples. In fact, to be separate from pagan idolatry was often to ostracize yourself from the rest of society. And so repeatedly through this section of the 1 Corinthians letter, Paul is addressing these questions that the Corinthians brought. What do we do about idolatry? And evidently there were those in the church who with the correct doctrine of understanding that idols were really nothing use that particular doctrine to say, well, then it's okay if we participate in these pagan feasts in the pagan temples if we really understood there weren't such things as other gods anyway. And Paul uses not just the present, but examples from the past to show them that this participation was not acceptable. First of all, he shows them their spiritual connection with Israel in the Old Testament. Then he shows them spiritual types for their benefit. And then finally, he will show them the spiritual admonition for them in their present circumstance and for us today. 
First of all, the first five verses set up this basic teaching that Paul is going to use, using the Old Testament as the examples to prove his point in the church. Notice what he says. I do not want you to be ignorant or unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. That's a lot of stuff. He's showing their spiritual connection with Israel in essence by, first of all, declaring that the people of the Old Testament, Israel, were their fathers. He's basically saying there is a consistent connection between the Israelites of the Old Testament and the Christians of the New Testament. He says these fathers, in essence, were baptized into Moses. Now, he doesn't go on to explain everything he means by this, but he does mean this, that these particular Israelites, as they escaped from Egypt, They were brought into this covenant community in the desert from Egypt, and they basically were given this right of entrance and this right of God's ownership in God's very presence. When it says they were baptized in the cloud, this, of course, is a reference to the column of cloud that represented God's presence in the daytime. Perhaps you remember the story of the Israelites in Egypt. And the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, if that stayed in one place, the community would stay in that place. If it began to take off, they would follow that particular cloud or fire. And it symbolized God's very presence. It would even separate at times God's people from their enemies and serve a sense of protection. And so here, when it says this, It says, basically, into the presence of God, they were baptized into this intermediary, imperfect, yes, but the person Moses representing the law and covenant of God. It also says they were baptized in the sea. We also know what that means. This is a reference to crossing over the sea in order to gain their freedom. As they left Egypt, they had grown from just a small number under the times of Joseph to now a, an entire nation of people fulfilling God's promises that they would have as many descendants as the sand of the seashore and the stars in the sky. And as they crossed that sea and as they eventually would cross the Jordan into the promised land, in essence, they were shown that they had an entrance into the community family of the people of God. And by saying, these are your fathers, Paul is talking largely to a group of Gentiles who had come to faith in Jesus Christ. And yet these Gentiles, he tells them, these Israelites who trusted in God and the God of the promise were your fathers. The connection there is strong. In fact, we might even say that the church is the Israel of God. And then he says, these fathers ate the same spiritual food and the same spiritual drink they drank. Now, what was the spiritual food he's talking about? He's talking about the food that God was providing for them. Literally, it was the manna in the desert. Literally, 
It was the water that God provided on more than one occasion when it looked like there was no water as they wandered the wilderness. God at times, twice in fact, told them to go to a rock where he would provide water. And we're told there that when they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, the rock was Christ. It's interesting how he describes this. Is he saying here that these weren't literal water and literal food to eat? No, he's not saying this. They're spiritual in the sense that they were miraculously provided to them by God. Now, we could go through a particular legend that the Israelites had, perhaps dating as far back as the time of Paul himself, that describes that there might have been a literal rock that the Israelites carried around with them and provided from place to place almost like a magic rock that would give them water wherever they were. I don't think that's what Paul is talking about. I think what he is talking about is this. As they were provided that miraculous food, manna in the wilderness for 40 years, every day, every night, with the exception of the seventh day of the week, God was providing it. It was a source from God himself. And as they wandered that desert and all those hundreds of thousands of people needed water to survive, God provided it for them time and time again. And in essence, we're reminded that Christ in his divinity existed before his his incarnation and his pre-incarnation deity was present in their provisions. And so when they were drinking of that water, they were drinking of the Lord's provision in essence in the faith that they had in God's promise of salvation. And that faith was Christ himself. But the last thing that Paul mentions in their connection here with Israel was this. Nevertheless, With most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. The word overthrown is really much more graphic. It actually says, their bodies were strewn about in the desert. You see, we are reminded that the Old Testament is God's very word. It's just as true as the New Testament. The things that are written in the Old Testament, as Paul is about to tell us, are important to teach us principles and warnings and truths and doctrines today. But in case you wonder, we wonder sometimes, do we have much in common with our ancestors? I think of those who founded our country. They didn't have the things that I have, reliable electricity, constant warmth in my house, transportation that can go faster than we even need to go, resources at our hand, hands and fingertips, information that they could not possibly gain except by great hardship. All of those things are so different from our ancestors. But these things we do have in common. A love for freedom, respect for human life, and so many more of the principles that are contained in the early documents of our country's founding. Many of those principles and many of those freedoms and many of those rights we love and we enjoy and we're connected with them 
in essence, in some ways, we are a part of the family of the founding of our country. And Paul is saying much the same thing in his doctrine that in Christ, the church is the Israel of God. And so here he comes to verse 6. He says, because of that connection, because in essence, these were also relying upon Christ in the desert. Therefore, these examples written for us were types. That's the word that's used. These things took place as types for us that we might not desire evil things as they did. In other words, he's reminding the people of Corinth as they're anticipating an answer to the question about whether or not to participate in idolatrous feasts. He says, I want you to consider your ancestors. I want you to consider their relationship to Jesus in the desert as Christ provided for their needs. And I want you to consider the examples that they said. And here are the examples. Aren't they wonderful? Verse 7, some of them were idolaters. He says, don't, don't be like this type. Don't be the idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now we could look at Exodus 32 when Moses had come back from the mountain and he and Joshua experienced a great noise in the camp as they were coming with the law, the Ten Commandments. And as they approached the camp, Joshua said, it sounds like there is, a, there is a problem, there might be war. And Moses said, that's not war sounds, I hear. That is the people who have broken out, as the words say. They sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. If we read the text of that chapter, we saw that as Moses and Joshua were on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments, literally those stone tablets written by the finger of God, Aaron had been in the camp making an idol for them out of gold and telling them to worship this idol and they had broken loose, that is they had acted like the peoples around them probably had fallen into great travesty, even sexual immorality in their practice of worshiping this golden idol. He says don't be like they were, idolaters, because what happens? They are judged. Then he says, verse 8, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We could turn to Numbers chapter 25 and look at the experience of Baal, the son of Peor, who was out there, first of all, prophesying at the behest of a pagan king who had hired him to curse the peoples. And yet Balaam, in this instance, he says, I cannot curse because God won't let me curse. He instead blessed the people. But then in his wisdom to try and gain a following from that pagan king enticed the Israelites to be involved in pagan idolatrous worship and the sexual immorality that comes with it blatantly, publicly, in front of everyone else. This is that great text where the son of the priest, that is Phineas, in his zeal actually took a spear and rammed it through two individuals who had participated in these things. And in the aftermath, God sent a plague where 24,000 people fell. In our text, it says 23. It says 24 in Numbers. 
We don't know all the discrepancy. I don't know all the details in that, but the point is this. In one day, over 20,000 people died because of their sexual immorality. The third example is also from the book of Numbers. It's Numbers chapter 21. It says, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. That's the text we read earlier. The text where the people looked at everything that was going on, the food that they were being provided, that spiritual food, the manna, the water that God provided for them, and yet they had to rely upon him to find it and locate it and have it, and they began to grumble and say, we just don't like it anymore. And they began to test God. And of course, what happened to them? They were destroyed by serpents. Many of them were killed for what had taken place. The fourth example, also from the book of Numbers, chapter 14, according to what we can understand, is the sin of grumbling. You know what it's like to grumble. The idea here is that they were grumbling about their situation and their circumstances, and we have to say, if we're honest, they're much less than we have. They did not have their own homes. They did not have their own plumbing or electricity. They did not have a constant uh, sense of being established in a community. They did not have all those things. They were nomads wandering in the desert. And yet God was providing for their every need and promising them that he would provide a land for them. And the whole reason they were wandering all that time in the desert anyway was because of their own disobedience. And yet when they grumbled, God basically gave this judgment that all of them save for two would perish in the desert. An entire generation of adults that would perish in the desert and never see the promised land, Moses included. So he looks at those types and he tells them these things. Think of those who are idolatrous. Think of those who participated in sexual immorality. Think of those who tested God, perhaps particularly thinking of those who test the boundaries of God. How far can we go? Those who grumbled against God. Think of all those things as types. They were desiring evil. Evil things, that's a plural term in this text. In desiring these evil things, they practiced and participated in these things. These were types for them. You know, in Sunday school this morning, we were studying a little bit of the history of the Reformation, just a section of it, dealing particularly with the things we know as the doctrines or points of Calvinism called TULIP. We were reminded how heretical teaching during that time in the 16th and 17th century Europe was often punishable by imprisonment or even death. In other words, if you were a teacher who promoted or taught things that were not consistent with the scriptures under even the Reformed Church, particularly in the Netherlands at this time, this country we were studying, you could be put in prison for your beliefs, you could be removed from your teaching and your pulpits and exiled to another land, or you could be put to death. But look at these sins. Not just teaching, but idolatry, immorality, testing the boundaries that God sets, and grumbling. God killed off all but two men of an entire generation for participating in these sins. Do we really think our sins aren't so serious? God is teaching that being a part of the visible church is not a get-out-of-jail-free card to do whatever we please. 
It is not for us to participate in sin and be an unbelieving member of the community. These were types for us so that we might learn not to desire evil as they did. In other words, Paul is basically saying here by all of these illustrations, if your goal is to participate in these idolatrous feasts and the immorality that comes with it and all the sins that come with idolatry in Corinth, then what you really want is to participate in evil. Don't do it. Just because you say you're a Christian, just because you've gone through the motions of being a Christian, doesn't mean that you can do whatever you want. If you're a person who is of the family of God, your life will look different. And so there is spiritual admonition for us now. Verse 11, now these things happen to them as an example, or typologically, that they were written down for our instruction or admonition on whom the end of the ages has come. And then the teaching. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Here were the Corinthians. In their wisdom, in their knowledge, and in their understanding of the doctrines that have been taught to them, they said, we know that there really isn't such a thing as idols. We know that there's only one true God. That God has given us the Lord Jesus Christ. And we know that because of those things, if we eat meat that has been offered to idol, we're really just eating meat. It has nothing to do with idols. That doctrine was correct. And yet they wanted to take that doctrine in order to participate in the culture and society of their day that included all these sins and all of those who were opposed to the teachings of God and Jesus Christ. And in their pride, Paul is warning them with these examples of the Old Testament, watch out, even if you know the right theology, your pride can cause you to fall. And yet, even if at this point we were to say, Paul, you're being too harsh, Paul, you're being judgmental. Paul, it looks as if there's no hope to live in the world around us. He encourages them with verse 12, perhaps one of the most important verses, 12 and 13 of this whole section. It says here, no temptation in verse 13 has overtaken you that is not common to man. You see, we should not fear temptation. He's telling them this is a legitimate thing. You are being tempted to participate in these wicked and abominable sins in the practices that take place in these pagan temples and these places. And this temptation is not uncommon. In fact, he says this, God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. In other words, God's faithfulness disallows unbearable temptation. Let me tell you, this is a very, very important doctrine. Sometimes it does seem like temptation is unbearable. Sometimes it does seem like we cannot possibly but sin in a particular way that we may be tempted. For the Corinthians, they're thinking to themselves, we would have to practically deny all of our relationships with our neighbors and our friends and our workplace and all those things in order to avoid practicing and participating in these idolatrous feasts in our community. And it seems as if it cannot be overcome. But Paul says this, God will not let you be tempted beyond that ability. Instead, he will do what? He will provide 
a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now it's interesting, those two things don't sound like they go together, do they? A way of an escape and an ability to endure. It reminds us that when we are tempted, it doesn't mean it's going to be easy to take the way of escape. And it doesn't mean that it's necessarily going to be a way of escape that takes us away from the temptations or away from the consequences of what's going on around us. Sometimes God will call us to remain in the midst of a place where there is temptation, but he shows us the way to escape from it. You see, temptation is terrible. It can sometimes seem overbearing or impossible to overcome, and yet by God's grace, he will provide for us two things, a way to escape that temptation, in other words, a way to stop sinning, and he will provide for us the way to endure the situation, to understand it may not seem to get better for a while. It may even in your lifetime seem as if it never may be taken away, but God will always provide for you a way of escape. How important that must have been for those Corinthians that thought that their whole life would end if they did not participate in the idolatrous feasts. And so he says very clearly, in case they did not get the point, with all the connections with the Old Testament, with the examples of judgment in the Old Testament, with the encouragement that God will be with them and encourage them through these times, he says very clearly, flee from idolatry. Get away from it. These are the words to Christians. If we are tempted to sin in different ways, we must flee from them. We must find ways in order to avoid the temptation. And then he does something very interesting. He's already talked about baptism. Now he talks about the other sacrament in the church, the Lord's Supper. He says, I speak to sensible people, kind of an interesting term. Judge for yourselves what I say, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices, participants in the altar. What do I imply then? And again, the teaching that food is not uh, food offered idol is not anything or that an idol is anything. No, he says, instead, they're really offering to demons. What he's saying is this. In this particular sin, the sin of idolatry, there is fellowship that takes place. The fellowship that he says is positive and good is described as the fellowship in the Lord's Supper. This word that we use for fellowship, the word koinonia, is used in this particular reference. It says when we partake of the cup of blessing, that is when we have fellowship or are fellowship partakers or sharers in the cup and in the bread, then we fellowship together with Christ and with the people in communion, we say, in today's parlance. The example from the Lord's Supper is this, we participate with Christ. We participate with his blood we participate with his body by faith and salvation and all of those things. The example here is that when 
sacrifices were offered in the Old Testament, the people there, before the Lord's Supper was a covenant sacrament, then they were in essence participating by the blood shed on their behalf in the faith of the promised Christ who would be offered on their behalf. So the example from the Lord's Supper and the example from the Old Testament sacrifices were both showing that by faith they participate. They have fellowship with Christ. How then? How then can you participate with idolatrous feasts where the people there are trying to fellowship with their own gods who in essence we know are nothing but in spiritual reality are demonic? Now, it's interesting, when we talk about participation today, I often think of the participation grade that my kids get when they're in school. You know how it is. You don't just go to class and sit there like a log or don't show up to class. Even in colleges, you have a participation grade. That is, it's not just that you sign up for the class and you do the homework or you do the tests and all those things. The professor or the teacher wants to make sure that you're actually participating in the classroom experience. There's a sense of community that's there. And there's a sense of understanding that it's not just the knowledge you have, it's the ability to apply it in community with others. Here is what Paul is saying. You can't just go through the rote motions of the Lord's Supper. You can't just go through the sacrament of baptism and all the rites and all the the ceremonies of religion and expect that that's okay for now you can do whatever you want in the rest of your life. He says, in essence, to participate in the Lord's Supper means something. It means that you have a relationship with Christ, that you are united to him. How dare you seek to unite that perfect son of God with demons? In other words, don't participate in what we call syncretism. That is to participate both in Christianity and in false religion or gods. True fellowship with Christ prohibits fellowship with any other religion or any sin that is opposed to God. And so therefore we avoid provoking the Lord to jealousy. Verse 22, shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Obviously not. Are we stronger than he? Did Jesus participate in such things? Did Jesus participate in immorality and feasts that would worship a foreign god? No. We're not stronger than the Lord himself. So therefore, for us now, the answer is no. Don't participate in things, activities, groups, environments where the the honor of God is tarnished and the people of God are rebuked. You see, there are multiple teachings in this chapter, but let's focus once again on the context. Should a believer participate in the worship of other gods? No. The encouragement is God will show you how not to do it. The warning is there is this is no new problem, but is just as serious as Old Testament idolatry. But the reminder is this. Going through the motions of faith neither fools God nor avoids his wrath. So if you have that question in the back of your mind, should I belong to this club? Should I be participating in this particular activity? 
Should I be doing this particular thing? It could be that the Holy Spirit is prompting you to consider whether or not that particular fellowship with that particular group or activity may be opposed to Jesus Christ himself. I ask you, as a Christian, consider not only the examples for our instruction, these types for our benefit, but your relationship with Jesus Christ. Is it foremost, and is it without participation in things that oppose him? Let's pray. Father, sometimes these questions are difficult. Sometimes these temptations seem great. And yet, by your grace, we have that promise. You are faithful. You will provide both a way to escape and an ability to endure. We thank you for this promise. In Jesus' name we pray.